I forgot to do something a moment ago. You know how it is that whenever someone of honor, of weightiness, comes into a room, everyone stands, right? Well, I've always found it interesting that whenever we choose to honor someone at Crossing, in most churches and most places, when we choose to honor someone, we usually ask them to stand. Today, I would like for us to stand and honor our veterans and them remain seating as it should be. So if you're a veteran with us today and you've served in any capacity in our armed forces at any way at all, we'd like for you to remain seated while we stand and applaud your service and thank you for that. Just please stand. As, you guys sit down. You can sit down. You know. As is the case with most people who are real servants, they don't like that kind of attention. But it is our pleasure. It is the very least we can do to honor those of you who have served for us. Another thing, let's just address the elephant in the room, that election this week. Uh, I personally um, didn't see it going the way it went. I personally didn't see it being the strain on relationships, especially some of the ones that were strained this week. What I think that it does is that it shows the underbelly a lot of a lot of our national character. It is always difficult to feel like you lost. And it is difficult to lose well. But character, real character is shown in learning how to win well. This week, I'm not saying names, a lot of Christians, if you felt like you win, did not show a great deal of character. Did not show a great deal of grace or care or concern. It has been a learning experience for me personally. I've been challenged about some of my assumptions and my beliefs as I hope many of us have, and I'm still processing those and trying to figure out exactly how to articulate it. But as a footnote to my sermon last week, just to be clear, there is no room for any Christian to post the kind of trash that you post. There's no room for any Christian to be involved in some of the things that have been said or done this week. We, as a church at Crossing, I speak for our leadership, and I hope I speak for you. And the only way we'll know that is by the way that you respond and act and behave and the things you say and do. And anymore, it's the thing you post, which is a different form of communication. We, as a church, do not judge a man or woman by the color of their skin, their financial status, their sexual status, their marital status, their ethnicity. And while we do our best to uphold the ancient standards as put forth in the Bible, holding those standards do not allow any of us to disrespect, dishonor, demean, or any other way mistreat another human being, especially one that we disagree with. Matter of fact, Christ was far more difficult and harsh with you and I than he was with the world. 
Yes, we fail at keeping those standards. I have failed at keeping those standards this week. But may those failings not be the norm. May they be the exception. May we be known for what we stand for and not what we stand against. May we be known for being and making committed followers of Christ. Followers of Christ that love others despite their failings, despite their sin, despite their brokenness. For we are all broken. Only in different ways. And some more so than others. Life has been harsh on some of us. So we extend the grace and the forgiveness that we receive to those around us. Last week, I encouraged you to vote as an ambassador of Christ. This week, I encourage you to love as an ambassador of Christ. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Can I get an amen? All right. We're all broken. That's week, We demonstrated that. To a larger degree, bitter, angry, hateful, intolerant, jealous, lacking in self-control. That would be easy to say. I can vouch for that one. I can give you a few examples personally this week. Of our tongues, lacking self-control of our tongue, lacking self-control of our bellies, lacking self-control of our eyes, our desires. Desires that compel us to vie for things that are not ours to have. And I bet this week has been a great case study for that. If the things you've seen and felt this week didn't bring out a little bit of the dark side of you, you're weird. We began our discussion last week in Genesis 3. I want you to open up there again. And I promise we're going to move beyond Genesis 3 eventually. I'm going to start in verse 6. I'm going to read the text for us as you find your way there, okay? When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig trees, lit fig trees, the whole tree. They sewed it all together. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I have heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman you gave to me, To be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. There is no end to the discussion that we could have about what is sin. Our students, I mean, let me ask of our students, and our children downstairs could answer this as well. Thank you very much. I see you doing it, Mr. Ashton. Lead, lead us. Lead us, stand up. Thank you very much. Sin is anything we think, say, or do that does not please God. That's what we've taught them. That's what they use when they share the gospel, in the context of Flood Philly and any other place. Sin is anything we think, say, or do that does not please God. Great definition. It's a very workable definition. Romans kind of is a little bit broader. Romans says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
In other words, none of us meet the standard of his holiness and righteousness. But I want us to go back to our discussion a couple weeks ago about Satan and the sin that ultimately got him kicked to the curb. Do you remember the repeated statements of Isaiah 14, verses 13 through 15, uh, 13 and 14? Five times Satan says, I will. I know the red doesn't show up very good, so bear with me on that. There is the, the writer is speaking to, about Satan to Satan, and he says, and, But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Five times he talks about I will, what he was going to do and where he was going to go. What, in reading that passage, those few verses, what would you say Satan was aspiring to? Talk to me. You haven't talked to me in a while. Talk to me. What was he aspiring to? God's job. Okay, good. What else? Don't be shy. Come on. What was he aspiring to? Control. Good. Anything else? All things to himself. Good. Thank you, Kevin. Any, I thought I heard someone else saying something at the same time. Glory. Glory. Yeah. Yeah. Rule the universe. All right, good. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot encapsulated in those I wills. What he wants, obviously, is to be at that same place and in the same, the same power and everything that God had, he wanted that as well. And what I would like to say is I'd like to summarize it with just this word here, autonomy. I would like to, to suggest that he wanted the freedom to be able to do what he wanted, where he wanted, and how he wanted. See, because that's what, he, that's what God ultimately has. God answers to no one. Remember a few weeks ago we read the creation passage, and in the creation passage, God says, where were you when I did this? No one. He goes, who is my counselor? Who did I go to for advice about how to create the universe? No one. It's me. I answer to no one, he says. What does he say? He says, he goes, I am the Lord God and I am one. There's no one else. He doesn't answer to anyone. And Satan, I believe, wanted that as well. You could also call it pride. You could also call it arrogance. All those things are true as well. But autonomy, freedom from external control or influence, independence. I want to be up there where you are. I want to be like you. I want to answer to no one. Now, so think about this. What was the very temptation that he used with Eve? For God knows in the day that you eat from, the eye, eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. You will be like God. No one will tell you what to do, where to go, what to eat from. You get to do what you want. No one to answer to, to do what you like, when you like it, and when you want it, where you want it. And consider, like Psalms 14 says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They do, they do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Isaiah, Isaiah 64, all of us have become like one who is unclean. 
and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We are shriveled up like a leaf, and the wind, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name, our strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us, and we have given and given us over to our sins. As we study Genesis, keep this aspect of sin in mind that mankind wants to be autonomous, and that sin, this is another thing, separates us. Sin separates us. Immediately in our text, we see that Adam and Eve were pointing fingers at each other. It was him. It was her. And then even Adam, dude, I mean, the dude was crazy. Even Adam had this veil and accusation that it was God's fault. It was the woman you gave me. It's your fault that this all happened. So the innocence and the purity of the relationship is broken. One commentator said it like this. When their eyes were opened in verse 7, this new knowledge the serpent promised actually showed them they were no longer the same, that there were differences. They were ashamed of their nakedness and tried to hide their differences. So they are separated. First of all, our sin, it separates us from each other. But the passage goes on to tell us that they were separated from God. Therefore, the Lord God sent them out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which it was taken. And verses 17 and 18 tell us that they were separated from creation. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat of it. In the days of your life, thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And ye shall eat of the plants of the field, but by the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread. When we look at themes in Genesis... It's not hard to see the theme of separation that comes through in this book and really follows through the entire Bible. The very next chapter, Cain is separated from his, by his sin from the family to exile and, and to exile to roam the earth. Later on, Ishmael is separated from the family. Later on, Esau and Jacob are separated because of their sin. Joseph is separated from his brothers and his father. And the story of separation, the story of lies and deceit, continue throughout the book and then spill over into all the Bible. And as we talked about in our class this past week, you know, Genesis is this story where, you know, the first three chapters talk about what it was like. And then the last two chapters talk about it will like, what it will be like. And the middle is talking about how God is redeeming the brokenness of his creation, man and all the universe, to himself. What is the natural reaction to separation? Talk to me. What, in like, you know, what is the natural thing that we do when we become separated? Fear. Great. Good. What else? Pain. Good. Thank you, Santa. Insecurity. Great. Anger. Blaming. Rationalizing. Say it again. Blindness. Exactly. Good. Say it. Stress. Good. Right. There is, there is nothing good that comes from separation. But I would like to suggest that, that the thing that we want when we are separated is to be reunited, is to resolve it, is to come back together, is to find out what we're separated from and find out the way back to it. It's like losing something and finding it is the solution. 
But think about this. What, what are we to do if we lose ourselves? What are we to do if we are separated from who we are and who we're supposed to be? Because, see, that's what we are. That's what has happened. In the garden, we were perfect. We were flawless. We were innocent. And we became imperfect, flawed, and guilty. We were separated from what we were in perfect unity with God. We were separated from that. The creation and the creator were one in one, one together. They, they, here, look at them. He was in the garden with them. And they were separated from that. If the natural reaction to, be, to being separated is to become united again, if the, reaction is to, is, if the reaction to being flawed, if the reaction to being flawless is to become, I'm sorry, let me say that. If the action to being flawed is to become flawless, is to fix ourselves. If the reaction to being sinful is to be sinless. And that's what mankind has been trying to do ever since they stepped out the gate of the garden and into the new normal of brokenness. How do we fix ourselves? How do we find ourselves over again? You think about it. That's what every religion that has spilled out of mankind has all been about. How do we get back to being fixed spiritually? And more and more in our day and time, mankind doesn't want to have a spiritual aspect to it. They want to fix themselves. I can do this. I can fix me. Through wisdom, through science, through good deeds, whatever it may be. The fix is complicated by our desire for autonomy. We want to be fixed, repaired, and unified and sent us, but not the way God wants to fix us, repair us, or unify us. We want to be repaired by elevating ourselves or by defining what God is for ourselves. Tim Keller, in his book, um, The The Reason for God, quotes um, Thomas Oden. And he says, Suppose my God or my fix is sex or my physical health or a political party. If I experience any of those under genuine threat, then I feel myself shaken to the depths. Bitterness becomes neurotically intensified when someone or something stands between me and something that I value is is my ultimate value. Would you say that that's what we've seen this week? That when man is left without God as an answer or part of their equation. They insert something else in the equation to fix themselves in the system. And when the system seems to be incredibly broken and offer no hope, then as he says, bitterness becomes neurotically intensified. Gary Snicker, a friend of mine, and he's a professor here at, at Cairn, in his book, The Torah Story, He says this, the biblical story then is not merely an accounting of what happened, but offers readers a view of why life happens as it does. Why are there, why have there been riots and protests in our streets 
every night of this week? Why has it become difficult to sit next to someone in this room this week? Why is Thanksgiving going to be really hard for a lot of people? Dorothy Sayers, in her 1947 book, The Creed or Chaos, says this. I mean, I'm taking that from Tim Keller also. She says that she proposed that the hopelessness after World War I and, after, and, and the hopelessness of the intelligentsia and all those who felt like World War I was going to be the war to end all wars and that we were going to be able to fix ourselves. But they became disillusioned as World War II set in and especially the atrocity of it. She says she proposed that their hopelessness was largely due to their loss of belief in the Christian doctrine of original sin. Did you catch that? Hopelessness hopelessness seeps in because they have no they have no reason to say people act the way they do. Why do people do these things? Why can't we fix it? And that hopelessness sits in because they don't they won't admit to original sin that we are born sinners and that it is at the core of who we are. Because of the loss of the belief in the doctrine of original sin, that is, humanity's inherent pride and self-centeredness. The people who are most discouraged, she wrote, are those who cling to the optimistic belief and the civilizing influence of progress and enlightenment. To them, the genocide in totalitarian states and the greed and selfishness of capitalist society are not merely shocking and alarming. For them, these things are the utter negation of everything for which they believed in. It's as though the bottom has dropped out of their universe. Christians, however, are accustomed to the idea that there's a deep interior delocation of the very center of the human personality. So you hear what she's saying? She says, those who are looking for man to improve himself and to make this the war of all wars and to be end of it, those who believe that we can heal ourselves and fix ourselves and break and, 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 and heal the separation and heal the brokenness in ourselves by our goodness and by our efforts. She says that they are the very ones who are the most hopeless because they look at the world around them and they don't see their good works, their intelligence, their science, whatever they are depending on as stemming the flow of the evil. Why is Genesis important? Why is it important that we understand the nature of sin and even its effect on us? Because Genesis, this ancient book, explains what is happening in our streets this week. But not only that, and even more importantly, it explains what is happening in our hearts A few minutes ago, I spoke about uh, of autonomy, and I said that it's expressed by saying no one to tell you what to do or where to be or no one to answer to. You get to do what you want when you want it. But now, if this sounds, but let me say this, let me say autonomy expressed this way, and let me know if it sounds more familiar in our day and time. 
I'm going to believe what I want to believe about God and the universe. I am going to be what I want to be. I am going to like what I want to like. Isn't that at the heart of what is fueling the incredible shift in our culture and the worldview? I don't want to answer to anyone. Therefore, if I want to label myself or identify myself or do certain things, I would do it without recourse from anybody. You're not the boss of me. I don't want to answer to anyone, and I especially don't want to answer to God. It is the epitome of our current worldview and an expression of autonomy. So this week, people are marching in our streets because they believe the road toward autonomy was through a political system that would give them the ability to answer to no one, to believe what they wanted to believe, to be what they wanted to be, and to live how they wanted to live. And this extends to other issues as well. Immigration, economics, environment. We as people have placed all of our eggs in a political basket. So those who won this week feel safer because they believe that it is a better chance of gaining support and they feel less vulnerable. Meanwhile, those who lost are experiencing fear and desperation. And both are wrong and will experience disappointment and desperation because no mortal candidate will ever provide what only God can provide. Every man, woman, who sits in that office would disappoint and leave us disappointed and despairing at some time or another. This week has revealed how little we really believe that God is in charge by how desperately we wanted the vote to go one way or the other, by how desperately we responded to the outcome of the vote. Or for some of us, how overjoyed we were at the outcome of the vote. Our desire for autonomy only brings separation. The resolution to our separation is found in Genesis as well. In Genesis 3.15, God says that the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent and he will bruise the heel of her seed. In other words, God had already resolved to have to fix this. He had already figured out a plan of resolving our separation by having his son be the one who comes and steps in that gap. He came and he lived a perfect life and he, he died a death he didn't deserve on the behalf of you and I. And, and all... And all that has been broken and separated is being resolved, brought together by the sacrificial death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote that man is reconciled. In other words, things that were separated are being brought back together in Jesus. Not in any political system, not in a welfare system, not in anything except for Christ. Is is there ever a place where we are resolved, where our situations, our, our, our problems, our sin is ever managed in any way. It is only there. And the Bible helps us to understand the trouble in our streets and it helps us to understand the trouble in our hearts. And at the core of that is our separation from Christ. If you're here today 
and you believe the best option for your hope lies in a man or a woman who's going to take the Oval Office or some other office, that's, you, you have set yourself up for incredible disappointment. If you're here today and you believe that the only hope for the church is for there to be the right guy in the office, then you don't understand the church or the power of the Holy Spirit or what God has done throughout the centuries. Because the largest church in the world right now sits in an authoritarian communist nation. It's not in a free world like our own. God or the church does not depend on a man or a woman to be in the office for it to prosper. It depends on men and women like you and me who look into our hearts and obediently follow him wherever he leads. That's what the church depends upon. God's spirit alive and unchecked in the hearts of his people to step into the space around them and to love others the way that Christ loved them sacrificially, and and regardless of their political views, regardless of their sexual views, regardless of anything at all, he stepped into that space and loved them. He had no room for us. More often than not, he had very little room for those of us who didn't love those people well. This morning, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I implore you to consider that. I implore you to take your hope from whatever it rests in and put it into something that is eternal and put it into someone who is eternal and put it into that death and the resurrection of Christ as being the only thing you can put your hope into that would leave you not wanting. Leave you not wanting. Our home is not this place. Our government is not a president It is a king who is eternal, and our home is one that we are still going towards. Our home is heaven, that he will come back and take us to. Let's pray. Father, this morning we confess, I confess, my own failures this week, my own arrogance and pride, my own... failure at placing my hope in people instead of you. I confess that and I'm sorry. Lord, may you continue to grow us. You've used this situation for many of us to reveal where our hope lies. You use this situation to reveal how unloving many of us are. I'll leave it to myself how unloving I am then. May we repent of the idols that we make out of political candidates and systems and nations. And may we draw to you and you alone. And may you deal with the sin in our hearts and the separation that it causes between families, friends, and nations. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.